Hello, Acquired LPs. David coming at you here with a very special surprise little bonus feed drop. So I had the chance recently to go on Levels podcast, our one of our very favorite companies here in the Acquired community, uh, called A Whole New Level, their podcast, hosted by none other than Ben Grinnell himself, Acquired Super LP, uh, and it was just a blast. We talked about all sorts of fun stuff, well, acquired stuff, lots of uh, riffing on theories about company building and strategy, and um, it was just uh, it was just a blast. And so we thought it would be fun to, uh, especially since it's such a such a fun part of the acquired community, to drop it here in our feed as well. So without further ado, we will cut over to our fun discussion. And uh, if you like what you hear and you want more levels and more Ben Grinnell, go over and subscribe to A Whole New Level in any podcast player of your choice. Thanks so much to Ben for having me on. And other Ben, Acquired Ben, and I will be back here in the LP feed soon. We've got two really, really cool episodes in the works with our editors now that we can't wait to drop. We'll see you soon. I think there's a main starting point. It's something that you and Ben have riffed on quite a bit. You and I have riffed on it loosely. And it's something that we've been thinking more about as a team with Levels, which is an ecosystem versus a single threaded company. And this is somewhat like Amazon and Apple, very much an ecosystem, versus a company like 23andMe. And I think back, I guess it must have been like the winter, you and I were jamming on this a little bit where it's like, it might have been right when you first tried Levels. And the thought was, right. 23andMe is doing great things in the world, not to dunk on 23andMe, but don't become 23andMe. It yep. was kind of the takeaway. I remember writing that in a uh, little note in uh, in my notion of my like all my thoughts as I was going through doing Levels for the first time. And uh, that was like the big one. I was like, yes, don't become 23andMe. Yeah, and there's a, this conversation around ecosystems right like amazon and how it didn't start out as aws and now that is such a significant portion of its revenue streams how how do you think about when you're not just vetting portfolio companies and i know early stage is much different but when you start to think about some of the diligence that you're doing and you see these great companies and you think man that is a giant platform or a giant ecosystem that is so hard to disrupt? Oh, well, let's see. Good question. Where should we start? I mean, let's start with early stage because that's uh, <laughs> that's the uh, the easy part. No freaking clue, <laughs> you know? <laughs> Not quite yeah. roulette. Not quite roulette. We'll yeah. call it blackjack, but it's still gambling. And perfect timing for this because I'm actually in the middle of doing research and prep work for our next special episode that we're going to record in a couple days with the guys from NZS Capital, which stands for Non-Zero-Sum Capital, which is a public market fund based in Denver. These guys are great. I just love their philosophy. We, we met them at, at a Capital Camp uh, a couple of weeks ago. And other people have done this, but I think they've done it, really embraced this more than anyone. This idea of complex applying complexity theory to investing complexity theory for folks who aren't familiar with it is uh, pioneered or, or really championed now by this place called the Santa Fe Institute in Santa Fe, 
New Mexico. Are you familiar with it? No, I haven't heard of either. Oh, it's so cool. Basically, the Santa Fe Institute is this nonprofit like educational institution dedicated to bringing together leading academics and theorists from a wide disparate array of fields and bringing them together to collaborate and specifically to collaborate around this idea of like complexity theory, which is the idea that the world and, and lots of like systems, universe, the world and lots of systems within it are complex. And let's see if I can get this definition right complex systems specifically complex adaptive systems are like dynamic it's it's like evolution you can't just like model out the stock market and be like these are the rules and this is how it works like it evolves mm. and it adapts and it's complex <laughs> and a couple of the big takeaways out of this concept are one you can't predict the future <laughs> so you just can't and if you like 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 you, you can't see coronavirus coming right and Thus, this idea of rather than being right, you want to be resilient. And so if you study like nature and biology, like ant colonies are this way or bees or, you know, river ecosystems and stuff like that. That's one. And then another big takeaway is the idea of power laws, uh, which is that as behaviors of actors within a, a complex ecosystem evolve, like a lot of emergent behaviors are not going to work a small number of emergent behaviors are really going to work. <laughs> so there's lots and lots of takeaways about this, but like one of the like clearest, most pure things of this is, is venture capital and startups is right. Like let a thousand flowers bloom. You have no idea. And if you just accept that you have no idea what is going to happen, you can still invest very intelligently by running lots of experiments and, and then let them surprise you. Yeah, that is really, really neat in the way to think about it because it gets to like, to, let's just use the market, for example, it becomes that, that discussion or the debate between two sides, the market is perfectly in efficient or perfectly inefficient, depending on the way you <laughs> position it, right? Like, is it perfectly efficient when people underreact to actual news and overreact to silly things? It's like, maybe you could call that efficient because then you're extrapolating it to the average investor in public markets doesn't read a ton of information before making these emotional decisions. You're like, well, that's perfectly efficient from a behavior perspective. And then you're like, well, it's actually perfectly inefficient because they're doing exactly what you shouldn't do, which is <laughs> make uneducated decisions, right? So everything yeah. is complex. And let's let's like get really tangible about it. So, you know, the NCS guys would say, this is related to this idea of like conviction that people talk about. Like we did this episode on TSMC and I was like, wow, this is a great company. I now have conviction about TSMC. And I went and I bought a bunch of TSMC stock after we did the episode. You can oftentimes boil, you know, what really you mean when you say I have conviction, I want to go buy this stock. What you're really saying is like, I have a view that it's going to do well in the future. And I believe that that view is correct. You know, <laughs> uh, and if instead you look at things and you're like, well, I have no idea if this is going to do well in the future or not. Instead, you might want to invest in companies and things and portfolios that are like resilient, that in a, a wide variety of outcomes in the future of things that might happen that you can't predict that X set of companies or X portfolio is going to be more resilient to a broader tale of those outcomes versus like, I think TSMC is going to do well, you know? <laughs> Yeah. And 
it gets into the conversation not just about diversifying a portfolio for an individual, but also diversifying revenue streams and offerings for a company. Exactly. And so that's that's where Amazon gets really interesting because let's use let's just use e-commerce and let's assume e-commerce, let's use like three of their pillars because there's so many, so many <laughs> channels we could go down, but we'll say like the marketplace side of things, which is just the e-commerce, like let's leave out third-party sellers. Then we've got AWS and we'll use Prime. So like content, infrastructure, commerce, retail. Assume there's a situation, let's use COVID, assume there's a situation where COVID makes everything go up as far as transactions on the marketplace. And Prime goes up because everybody's at home consuming content. But for whatever reason, the infrastructure isn't required. Let's just make this up. The infrastructure on AWS is no longer required. And that used to be the cash cow for Amazon. Now everything's mm-hmm. changed with their business model. It's like they're so resilient because they're they're not, they're sort of like COVID proof, we'll call it that. And let's pretend the company's not called Amazon because we don't want people to anchor (laughs) on this being a real example. But the idea is that when one element of a pillar is no longer the cash cow or the, like the, that's back to power laws where most of the returns are coming from that one pillar or a small subset of whatever we're looking at, the other ones start to take off. And so that gets into the importance of creating this ecosystem or this platform for a company over time. Yep. And if, you know, bring it back to sort of the original question, if you think about 23andMe, and again, not to like dunk on them, you know, they've accomplished something great. They've actually like directly impacted my and Jenny's life, my, my wife Jenny's life. So it's wonderful what they've done. But as a business and a company, you know, for most of their life, like they make a test kit that you take it home and then they give you like flat data from that. And there's nothing else to it, you know, (laughs) and it's not ongoing and there's no ecosystem, et cetera, et cetera. That's not very resilient. You know, there's not a lot of, uh, you know, the other piece that NCS talks about out of this is like resiliency and then optionality. And oftentimes part of being resilient is having strong optionality about the future. And Amazon is a wonderful example of that. Whereas, you know, (laughs) the 23andMe example, less so. Yeah, that's exactly it is. You see, especially with marketplaces, you see optionality as being the number one value prop for people. So the idea with doesn't matter whether you are wide like Amazon or whether you're vertical like StockX, the idea is not only are they solving a different problem where it's like it is no longer efficient to get sneakers off of eBay. It's that you actually can't get all the sneakers that you want if you're a true sneakerhead. And so you need to aggregate really deep supply for anybody that's interested in Pokemon cards, sneakers, like name any vertical marketplace, right? But that's where as soon as you get optionality and you get optionality, we'll call optionality is synonymous with density in a marketplace, supply side density. That's where things get really interesting because, and this is a big juxtaposition, People want optionality, but behavioral economics tells us to minimize options. And then the next layer of it is what we actually want is we want it's the way we structure choices. It's not actually the it's the number of choices that we make. We want to minimize those for people, but we want to offer the maximum number of options. Once you start to drill down the taxonomy of choices, it gets very Mm -hmm. academic, but it's a really interesting way of looking at things where it's like these two completely different ideas or heuristics about 
how to be successful is minimize choices, but maximize optionality. How do you get to the two? It's, it's basically choice architecture or taxonomy. Well, listeners, this is the perfect opportunity to introduce a new sponsor here on ACQ2, Quarter. Their new product, Quarter Pro, launched about a year ago and is already adopted by several Fortune 500 companies and some of the world's largest hedge funds and equity research departments. Yeah, this research platform is transforming the way qualitative public market research is conducted. Here's how Quarter Pro works. You can get every piece of first-party information from public companies all in one single place. That's live earnings calls with real-time transcripts, company filings, slide decks, and more. Quarter Pro has built a world-class user interface for this. Yep. Let's say you're an investor or a podcaster, and you've got the use case where you need to look up a company such as Novo Nordisk, Hermes, or Visa. You can open their platform and search Guidance or Market Outlook. Quarter Pro then immediately identifies all instances where a company has historically mentioned and discussed these topics in all of their IR-related communications. Or here's another pretty crazy thing they've done that's difficult to get anywhere else. You can actually search through literally every individual slide in Quarter's database, covering 9,000 public companies and millions of slides for any keyword mention based on Quarter's AI capabilities. This truly makes it easier than ever to conduct qualitative analysis of entire industry value chains and specific companies. So whether you're an equity research analyst, an asset manager, or an investor relations professional, this platform will help you increase your productivity through their live call, transcript components, AI-powered summaries, and a feature allowing you to visualize the entire timeline and changes of specific slides throughout quarters. Quarter also offers their database as an API solution. This enables other companies such as trading and research platforms, as well as AI and LLM companies to build custom solutions and integrate this database into their offerings or add functionality on top of the data. Yep. To find out why leading companies globally are choosing Quarter Pro in their day-to-day work and to experience the platform firsthand, request a personal demo by visiting quarter.com slash acquired. That's Q-U-A-R-T-R, no E, Q-U-A-R-T-R dot com slash acquired. Or click the link in the show notes to get the personal demo from the Quarter team. Our thanks to Quarter. Yeah. Well, I love the, you know, the StockX example is so cool because it's an unbundling of eBay, right? Which is like, on the one hand, eBay is like maximum optionality. I can have whatever, I can go buy whatever I want around the whole world there. But yeah, like the paradox of choice is also real. And also because they're so wide, like sneakerheads can be served better by StockX. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I just, I love that example. The interesting thing with eBay is that eBay was. So let's look at eBay in isolation. Granted, Amazon has a lot of history as well. eBay is one of the first true platform companies from a marketplace perspective, where people took the marketplace and they started building on top of it. And they built on top of it from an ecosystem standpoint where PayPal could not have existed I mean, it just wouldn't have. Objectively, it would not have made it. Everyone says it who worked with PayPal in the early days. They would not have made it if it weren't for eBay. And so they had a what seemed like a bolt-on product, but it ended up being part of this giant ecosystem. And then it became a great fintech product and totally different conversation. But that was one element of an ecosystem. And another element was 
Bob and Jane could have a standalone retail store where they collected items that you could go trade in at some value just below what they thought they could get for 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 retail or they sell it on consignment. And you saw this happening a lot in the late 90s, early 2000s when people would have these stores or they would do retail arbitrage was kind of the next, like we'll call it 2006 onwards, where people really took this retail arbitrage approach to build upon this entire ecosystem that was eBay. So it wasn't just even unbundling of the marketplace. It was how are people starting new businesses on top of this other Mm, one? Yep. Really interesting to think about. And that's something that like we think about more and more as we're thinking, how do we, how do we maintain a product centric member centric focus, but know that there's this long lens of building a giant ecosystem around it, right? Community and an ecosystem. Well, that's what's so, you know, like there's one feature of Levels where the main and, you know, only or main thing that Levels does is I open up, you know, the app once or a couple times a day and I get my metabolic score for the day. Okay. You know, fine. Like that, that's cool. Like I, I like that. It's, it's, it's really unique and novel and useful, valuable data that I can't get any other way right now. But a more interesting feature for Levels is, you know, you guys are the platform you know hardware software sense you know the everything that goes into that for understanding for getting data and insights about what's happening inside your body and you guys can build stuff on that and everybody lots of other people can build stuff on that and like thanks to that you let you let the thousand flowers bloom you have all this optionality about what's interesting and useful to people either everybody you know broad populations or niche narrow populations that other developers can use the levels platform to access data and give people insight about their bodies and health like that to me that sounds cooler like i don't know about you guys but (laughs) yeah that's something that sam and josh have been talking about lots lately which is bio observability Right. So it's uh, Josh always uses Josh is a big car nut for the record. <laughs> Lo- loves I cars. actually did not know that. That's awesome. I mean, loves machinery. Of course, it that makes sense. <laughs> the idea that you can get more data from your car right now. So the check engine light goes on and you know that if you don't address the check engine light within n number of days, let's say you leave it for like two years, the probability of there being other engine failure is a lot higher than if that light wasn't on. And if you would have just addressed the light being on within a reasonable amount of time, like it's probably your car is going to have decent maintenance. Well, the idea that we don't have a check engine light for our bodies is (laughs) insane, right? Like it really is. Totally insane. And so to, to your point about observability, what can you do when you start being able to analyze and create or generate data around molecules like many different molecules in your body how cool is it when other people can start doing really really long tail things and when i say that i don't mean academia can come out of the woodwork and say cool we've got funding to do other things where it gets interesting is some 11 year old hacker playing around with a data set that is accessible an anonymized data set that is accessible and all of a sudden uncovers some new like some new arm of research that everyone's like, I had no idea. That is where building on top gets 
insanely cool because so cool. the discoverability for the world and how much better how much better off we can be from a health perspective gets really neat. We start to talk about being able to truly expand people's life, like have a longer lifespan and health span. It's like Apple and, you know, the iPhone and the App Store, right? Like both in terms of the opportunity and potential for for you all at levels. But also, I, I think, and, and I think maybe this was some of the motivation of this whole discussion and topic in general of like... You guys couldn't, when you started, couldn't have come out and be like, yep, we are this thing. Like we are, you know, the iPhone and the app store for your body. (laughs) Like cool, people might've gotten excited, but that's not how you build platforms, right? Like you got to start with the product itself and a narrow use case, just like the iPhone, right? Like there was no app store when the iPhone launched. They launched the app store once they had millions and millions of people (laughs) who owned iPhones. And similarly, I, I don't think you can or it's incredibly hard to just like launch right into platform status, you know? <laughs> it takes years to get there. Yeah, and I mean relevant example that has been going on for gosh, when did you drop the Sweeney episode, Tim Sweeney from Epic. Oh was yeah, that February. was last year. Lost track of time already. But great, great episode. Very relevant where Sweeney, to recap it for anyone who hasn't listened, you have to check out. Is it called Epic or is it yeah, I think it's called Epic? Uh, right? I think yeah, we just called it Epic Games. Yep. Epic Games on acquired. So it, basically Tim Sweeney is fighting for everybody else because Epic is one of the biggest contributors to Apple's success because of the entire ecosystem that has been built around that. So without Apple, Epic couldn't exist. But without Epic, Apple, like Apple needs Epic more than Epic needs Apple. And that's sort of the summary of that episode where Tim Sweeney's <laughs> like, I, I don't really care. Like, we don't need you. But the exposure that Epic got through Apple is quite significant. And that's back to that symbiotic relationship as these platforms or as these ecosystems develop where everyone sort of gets locked into them in some way, shape or form with the more scale they get individually. Yep. Well then, you know, I mean, shoot, (laughs) Epic, and maybe this is a roadmap in some ways for you guys too. Like Epic's an interesting one because they, you know, started as a a game. Well, shoot. Oh, because it's been a year and a half since the episode. I, I forget the early, early history of Epic. If I remember right, they actually were making like Tim was making like word processors and stuff like text editors. It wasn't originally that he wanted to get into gaming, but but then you know they started making games, right? You know, Unreal Tournament being the most successful one, and then they made Gears of War for Xbox. And all. So they were just game developer, right? And then you know participating on other people's platforms, whether that was PCs or Xbox or you know the like. And then they realized, oh, we can kind of become a platform business ourselves too, and open up the engine and let other game developers use that. So you get these like nested platforms, you know, and that's good. That's as it should be. Like, you know, uh, that's the the standing on the shoulders of giants thing. I mean, back to Amazon, that is what, forgive me, I'm going to forget the name. What's the company? Thrasio? The one that's... Thrasio. Yeah, yeah. Yes. Yeah. So, I mean, they're, gosh, they must be a couple billion in valuation right now. I can't yep, remember what their last... They're rolling up uh, uh, Amazon third-party sellers that they're buying and putting together into one organization. Yeah. So it's almost like the granular level of retail arbitrage is you and I go to the store, we find a bunch of Barbie dolls on sale for 
$9, we think we can sell them on eBay for $14. There's our margin right there. And Thrasio is saying, cool, we're going to arbitrage third-party sellers where we think that we can get economies of scale and scope by aggregating all these third-party sellers under one umbrella. And if you said that idea 10 years ago, people would think it was nuts. There would be no (laughs) room for that. Now, I mean, they're not the only company that's doing this. And not only are they not the only company, but they're, they've got a decent enough valuation. Like, I can't remember what it is after the last round of funding, but I want to say it's somewhere around two or three at least. Yeah, certainly. It's it's large. I think it's that or higher. I don't know exactly, but yeah. Let's look now, it's it up right now. I don't know enough about them to know if they and their sort of constituent brands are only selling on Amazon or if they're selling elsewhere too or how they're thinking about that. Yeah, I don't know that either. I'm just looking at crunch piece from April, 100 million Series C, and it doesn't say exactly what the valuation is, but it's potentially between three to four. So one at, we'll call it one at four. But still, aggregation of third-party sellers. Yeah, yeah, totally. Well, the the reason I bring it up, you know, in this whole sort of platform discussion is, um, you know, canonically, and every rule is made to be broken, but if you are building only on one platform if you you have like existential risk on that on one platform that can be a hard place to be like amazon could change the rules on them and maybe they won't because you know they're worried about antitrust and all that but that's a key strategic point of dependency and i think also you know paypal is instructive here while paypal needed ebay to grow ultimately eBay was the sort of Damocles hanging over them and they had to sell to eBay for way, way, way less money than like the potential of PayPal, you know, (laughs) it was a billion and a half dollar acquisition. And now that eBay spun out PayPal, you know, and it's fully, you know, Optimus Prime transformerized, you know, uh, business not dependent at all on eBay. It's what a 300, 400 billion dollar market cap company. Yeah. And there's in in those cases, there's so much leverage asymmetry, like the asymmetry is so far in favor of the one of the platform that you are on. Extrapolate this to content creators. And this is probably a little bit Gary V, but where anyone who talks about it goes deep and says, do not go all in on Instagram or one platform, like make sure that you are diversified in your presence. If you have it as we'll call it your content creator. Instagram is your sole source of income. That's actually not great because then you hear of people who are, I mean, I've got a friend who is a YouTuber and he's approaching just under a million. He's okay as far as diversification goes, but he realized it was important when he was like, oh, I'm kind of handcuffed by the algorithm here. And yeah, right. when they it changes, algorithm and- yeah, when it changes, it's not just my AdSense revenue coming in it's that i don't get as many brand deals because they only care about your last few videos and their performance and so there are all these trickle down effects where you're like oh you have to make sure that you have the distribution channels you have to have a lot of breadth in what you do and then deep enough roots in in all these different platforms that it's like okay cool you're relatively covered. You can weather the storm no matter what. And you're never really relying on one point of exposure or failure. Yep. Oh, what great illustration and example of the 
the resiliency concept, right? Like if you're, you know, look at the people that do it, like Mark, you know, Marquez and MKBHD and plenty of others, you know, are, um, their primary or only channel is YouTube, but like, wow, that is a big strategic point of dependency. <laughs> Maybe there's a point of critical mass too, though, right? Like yep. Epic. So Tim Sweeney is a good example where he's not overly reliant on Apple. He's not overly worried about them. Yeah, um, He's got Steam. He's got Android. He's got the consoles. Like there's plenty of places where all of Epic's businesses, both their own games and, and, people who develop on the unreal engine where they exist on on lots of platforms yeah and and maybe and let's make up this example because why not throw in a hypothetical but without knowing tim sweeney personally let's make us some assumptions tim sweeney we know that he is a bachelor we know he's in his 50s we know that he basically just codes and works and enjoys that (laughs) Right, like he walks in the woods in North Carolina. (laughs) Exactly, like that's what he enjoys doing, and so he's probably fighting a lot less for Epic and his own wealth creation or adding to his wealth than he is for every other developer. Everybody who is who feels this sense of tension between what happens with Apple and what happens when you're building products especially at this point in his career, right? Like he's got so much diversification that he's he's basically like fighting for the little guy, if you want to put it in air quotes, you know, and that's that there's something to be said about that because that is, that is where he's got enough leverage and everything else he's done because of diversification back to this whole ecosystem platform conversation. It's like when you get that wide, when you get that deep in all these different streams, that's where you can start to actually take big bets because you're never, you're never so reliant on one stream that you, you become risk adverse and then it's sort of you hit the the top of the maturity curve and you can't figure out why things are just going down it's kind of like um <laughs> the original name and concept of acquired uh, you know tech acquisitions you know a lot of times i think acquisitions happen because you've lost your strategic leverage to be independent you know paypal being a great example of that right like paypal was on fire in a good way even you know post-tech bubble like the business was doing incredibly well the growth was incredible but ebay had all the leverage (laughs) so you know there you go look at what happened but in a case like tim and epic nobody has leverage over him and part of that is you know strategic business but also it's like you were saying he controls the company you know, he could go sell Epic today to Apple or anybody else for 20, 30, 40, 50 billion dollars. He doesn't care about that. Like, you know, why would he do that? He values independence and being able to use Epic as a platform for what he thinks is right and how he the direction he wants the world to go. Yeah, it changes it changes the dynamic a lot. And that's what I mean, jumping into the innovator's dilemma. This is it's funny because it's something that or we'll call it disruptive innovation slash the innovator's dilemma hat tip. The late Clay Christensen. It's super funny because it's it's probably one of those core concepts that that is taught in every business school at this point, I would assume. But so many people get the get the idea or the concept of disruptive innovation wrong and the innovator's dilemma. So when you if you talk with someone and they say oh that's so disruptive that's disruptive innovation it's better faster cheaper 
And it's actually like, that is the opposite of what <laughs> the innovator's dilemma is. It's that you're, <laughs> it's more expensive. It's worse. Where this came up, hat tip Tom, Tom's part of our team. And we were just talking about AirPods and he said, I don't understand why everybody uses them if they complain about them and they say how much worse they are than wired. He's still on wired headphones. I know Sam uses wired as well because exactly this reason i said it has nothing to do with like wired are objectively better they're more reliant the sound quality is better but the reason airpods are disruptive is because they're unlocking a completely new value prop for people that wired headphones can't solve for which is and there are actually a lot of value props depends on the person so for some people it's hands-free for other people, it's not having to carry their phone in their back pocket while they're cooking dinner. Like hands-free being, hey, you can use Surrey, which again, like digressing for a second, a great, <laughs> a great piece of tech built on top of this other product, which is depth in itself, right? For for getting stickiness or lock-in. But that's where it's really funny because yes, AirPods are absolutely disruptive. And you see all of these Me Too products come out on the market as soon as you see the success of Bluetooth headphones. But they're more expensive. They're worse. The battery doesn't last for that long. There are all these frustration points, but people put up with it because it is completely different than wired. That is to the innovator's dilemma point and to your point about these large companies that sort of fizzle off and they, they end up not having a lot of leverage in some of the exits that that take place, they're at a point where they're like, well, I can't really focus on something else instead of my cash cow. I have to keep focusing on my cash cow. How could we ever invest in these things called AirPods? Because <laughs> Wired are just selling so well. And so then you don't really want to go it, go for it. Large companies don't have the appetite for risk. And then you get to the point where it's all downhill and really hard to recover. And no one wants to, in the funding environment, provide you with funding. <laughs> yeah, yeah, totally. Well, and, you know, Apple is um, one of the just greatest of all time at understanding this dynamic. And, uh, or at least old Apple was, you know, I guess the jury's a little out on on new Apple, but on understanding this dynamic that like, yeah, you know, the Mac is our cash cow. And um if we put OS 10 into a mobile device and sell it as a smartphone, it might cannibalize a lot of Mac sales, but you know what? It's going to be worth it to, <laughs> to do that. And absolutely it was. Yeah. Apple's really funny because I think you got, you and Ben have talked about this a lot where Apple could have kept their network closed, like their dev network so that only Apple can build Apple apps on top of their platform but that would have been a terrible strategy because there would have been less and not to use the cliche word innovation, but less like products created from scratch. There would, there probably wouldn't be an Instagram because they wouldn't have any need to create anything better than the photo app. Yep. Photo uh, sharing would be Instagram. But, and this is another, oh, just a great example of adaptability and how important that is. It's like, <laughs> that wasn't the strategy at the beginning. Jobs didn't want third-party developers to use the iPhone and to access the iPhone. You know, it was a year or two after the iPhone launched when there was so much demand for it. And it was clear that the potential was so big for this as a platform that then, you know, he and Apple changed their minds <laughs> and released the SDK and created the App Store. But that was not the original plan. <laughs> That's sort of what I was saying in the beginning about like, you know, sort of platform strategy. It's like 
platforms tend to be much, I think a much better strategy is an emergent strategy, like versus a top down, like we are going to architect this platform and drop it onto the world. Like, you know, <laughs> you got to pay attention to what's going on and adapt. Yeah. So th- here's a question is, do you think companies can actually build a platform with like, maybe reframe it? Do you think like companies? Intentionally? Yeah. Like, do you set out, so you're an early stage company and you're like, we are going to be a platform. I actually, I would argue and I'm interested to hear what you think, I'd argue that you can't. The reason you can't is back to the original point you made right at the beginning, which is you can't predict events. So two years ago when Levels was starting, it would be really hard to predict. You could have a vision, but it'd be hard to predict that there'd be this thing called the wearable challenge built on top of our platform, which is (laughs) what's happening right now. It's a small team Aaron Hansen, based out of Austin, leads it. But it's this challenge where people can pay money to enter in a 30-day weight loss challenge. And every day that they hit their target, like their glucose target, they get paid back $25, the money that they put in to like, participate uh-huh, in awesome. this thing. So there's like all these incentives and I mean, w- much deeper conversation. But the point is, this, w- this is independent of levels. Somebody said, not only can we do something interesting from an intrinsic perspective in helping people, but there is an economic incentive to be able to do this. There's an economic reason for wanting to do this. And if you can scale it, so be it. And so that is like a small, small example, well in beta where somebody has independently started building on top. We couldn't have done that because we don't have the, the time or the capacity as our team. Now, assume that we did. This is where things are from a platform perspective are you guys like uh embracing that and like supporting them and helping and encouraging more of this 100 percent, yeah so we're we're on wearable might be wearable 11 by now so i mean pretty cool to watch all the cohorts go through it and the community engage with each other but assume our team had bandwidth for this where and this is back to the apple idea of opening up the the entire ecosystem you can't imagine what you can't imagine. Like it's a little bit Walt Disney, Bob Iger, mm-hmm. but you have to have this creative lens of, well, what does it look like when other people start to imagine these really long tail things? That's how true ecosystems unfold is when all of these people come together and they start to say, well, what if it was this on top of that? And you're like, would have never thought of that. Yep. You know, yep. so you're to, to, like ask the question again after that long rant, do you think you can actually go out and say, hey, we're building a platform or is it sort of a byproduct of once you get traction? You know, it's funny. I was I was thinking about this as, uh, well, from the beginning of this conversation, but as, as you were talking and asking the question there, I actually, I would have said no, and I think I said no in the beginning of the conversation, but I actually think there is at least one area, maybe more, where you can do this and where it actually makes sense to have goals to be a platform from the beginning. And that is developer tools like Stripe or like in in protocols in the crypto world, like Ethereum or Solana. In those cases, I think it makes sense. Like the whole point, let's take Solana, right? Like the whole point of Solana is for as a protocol to have people, developers build various applications on them you know yeah Uh, the whole point of stripe is for you know internet-based applications to accept payments on it so yes in in that case yes but in sort of consumer 
consumery stuff that ends up becoming platforms, I still think it's a lot harder. I think it's much better to have it be an emergent thing based on a product. Let's go into 23andMe again, because that's something that after we had that conversation in, call it January or February of 21, we're at September 14th, 21 right now. So that was that's right. nine, eight or nine months ago. I started thinking more about how could 23andMe still, or how could they have become deeper in their network effects? And there are all these ways that they actually could have done it around connecting people. I assume like data is anonymized, but there's still ways that you can create network effects. That's an example of a consumer company where maybe they had the opportunity to become a platform and they didn't. And now they're in this single threaded product stream where I don't know how, like, I just don't have the answer for how they ever get past this. And again, not that valuation is everything, but if we look at things through a capitalistic lens, because they've got the responsibility by putting up their hand and saying, hey, we're taking venture money, we're taking venture money, we have to provide returns to our shareholders. Like, that's just the reality of the game they they decided to play, and that's great. But I don't know how they get past this, this point of being gosh, I want to say they're at like 4 billion in valuation. So even if they're doing amazing things for the world, it will be a lot harder for them to get exponential growth past this point as a single threaded company. Well, and I think, let's see, I just looked at it because they went public via SPAC earlier this year, which is also why I was thinking of them. $3.3 billion market cap right now. They tried, have tried, I don't know how well it's gone, but I, I, I think they would say that their platform that they wanted to build, that they would say they did want to do this, and maybe they are doing this, but around drug researchers and drug discovery, not consumers, and that the consumer test that they sell is really just the, that's the data collection mechanism for them, but what they really are is a genomics data platform for drug discovery researchers to use. I don't think that's gone <laughs> super um, incredibly well, but yeah, um, I'm not sure exactly why. I don't know if it's execution or if it's just these things are so separate from one another, you know, like, like the nice thing about like, let's take the app store and, and iOS and the iPhone. It's so tied together the you know, who the various players are in that platform ecosystem. Like you've got the consumers that buy the phones and use the, uh, the consumers that buy the phones and want to use apps. And you've got developers that make software experiences for the consumers. Well, the consumers use them directly. Like, that's awesome, you know? <laughs> Whereas with 23andMe, it's like, oh, great. Like, I'm interested and in, I want to learn more about my genetics. I take this test and then I get a flat set of results and I'm like, okay, cool. And then, and then the drug developers get to use my data but there's not like a one-to-one connection there like maybe someday 10 15 years in the future some drug might be developed using 23andme data that that drug then becomes relevant to my life but like that feedback loop is really weak and long (laughs) yeah maybe what it comes down to is they're divergent paths so if you decide that you're building a consumer company it's inherent that you're going to focus on brand. Like I I can't think of an example where there's a consumer company that doesn't focus on brand. 
TSMC is a great example where it's like <laughs> not there a is company though. Zero brand. No, that's my point. Like yep. there's they're just like we don't I mean they they could do everything they want to create a brand and it wouldn't make a difference at all. If you are so assume 23 and me goes down this drug discovery path, like went down, not where they are today because they only ever launched as a consumer brand. If they went down that path, they might have like a TSMC brand where it's Hey, we don't really like, what's the point? Who cares? We're not trying to put out content and create market awareness. We're just going down this drug discovery path, trying to do what is best for research of progressing health in the world. Yeah. And so because they didn't launch that way, this is sort of into like the innovator's dilemma on execution. It's like, if we choose to do that, we're going to spend less time building our brand. If we yep. don't build our brand, then no one's going to know us and we're no a consumer brand. The, use the kids. Yeah, yep. exactly. Yeah, so they're serving and, these two masters at the same time, which is exactly. Like, oh, we're trying to create this great product for consumers and this brand that people want to use. But if they really like, if the mission was like accelerate drug discovery, you would architect a very different type of company, right? If the mission was like create this, you know, genetic consumer product for consumers, you would, you know, that's very, that's, that's different. Like, but trying to do both because they really are very unrelated to one another. Very much so. Very much so. I, I mean, I'd be hard pressed to find anyone, even like within like our friend group that could name one of the top drug discovery companies, like non-pharma, like a startup. It's just, we wouldn't, right? Yeah. You wouldn't have a clue. I mean, <laughs> well, not until Moderna, right? <laughs> yes, yes. But, but it's just not something that comes that's up That's the example in, that proves the rule or the exception that proves the rule. Exactly, exactly. But you, would, you just wouldn't know on average that this exists. And so by being a consumer brand, you make these, you have these trade-offs in choice. So you as soon as you go down that path, you have to stay down that path. And then everything that you do becomes a touch point. It's down to user experience. It's down to all these things. Like if you're that deep in drug discovery, you actually don't even care what your logo looks like for the most part, because you just slap it on top of like an investor <laughs> right. update. It's just, have there's you no seen real the TSMC purpose. logo. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's amazing. It's hilarious. It's amazing. It's like, Encyclopedia Britannica clip art from yep. 97. It's just awesome. It's so great. It's people, people often ask us, Hey, are you going enterprise? That comes with a trade off in itself because not just because sales cycles are longer, there's a lot of value capture because you can start to go, you could pick a vertical within enterprise. Let's say you picked professional sports or corporate wellness or like name a vertical. Mm -hmm. There are so many avenues that you can take, but that approach becomes a trade-off as far as like opportunity cost of time. You're just spending less time on the consumer aspect. Right. Now of you're building a professional services organization to go, you know, sign up Procter and Gamble or a bunch of large companies to get their employees to use your level, right? Like that's, <laughs> that's well, not exactly. your mission. Exactly. It's, I mean, look at competitors to Apple. So when Apple rewind a bunch of years, so Apple went through this phase where it was like consumer B2B John Foley's in as CEO, 
then jobs comes back and it's consumer again. That was like a very, they were very, very different companies when jobs left, went to go build next and did everything else that jobs did. But the idea that homebrew computer club started as this like underground consumer movement, it was like built around community. And then I I remember uh, Scully. Scully was the CEO of place. I was like, John Foley. John Foley. Oh, John Foley. John Foley. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't even, now, that uh, would be interesting if he were CEO of Apple. That's hilarious. That's a good catch. Because in my head, <laughs> I was picturing John Scully's face and I uh, said, John Foley. That's hilarious. So great. <laughs> but yeah, so then they go to, Apple went to this B2B route. They're trying to sell into education. And that's when PCs were the predominant computer from a consumer standpoint. You try to play different games and you're going to get different outcomes. Like there is a world, I'm glad it doesn't exist, but there's a world where Apple actually was the B2B player and Dell was the consumer facing, like the predominant consumer facing hardware or Lenovo, right? Late, it came a lot later on, but those are realistic outcomes. And so that's where it becomes you have to be really careful about which path you're going to take and what your intent is as far as how you want to build a company and what kind of impact you want to have. Peloton's an interesting uh, case too. Uh, do you guys uh, look at them or, or think about them? been thinking about them a lot more lately. There are a couple companies that that really tie into this ecosystem thought process. So Peloton is one, but I'm, I'm trying to decipher in my head like they're all different aspects of what companies are doing. So let's dissect these four examples for a sec. When you start to think about these companies that are getting deep, one of them just came up actually from Ferris, an episode that Ferris did the other day where he was talking to James Dyson. Very interesting company, which you guys got to do an episode on. Peloton builds hardware, creates content. They've got a community. Apple, hardware, software, not really community. It's it's still a cult brand, but it's not this. It's not like community. No, is Apple does not have a part. community. No, I mean maybe you could call it like some underground dev community, but we'll just yeah maybe. I mean yeah, at some point maybe the developer community, but like yeah, not <laughs> now deep. with now with how they're behaving in the epic trial. Yeah. No, they do not have a community. No, exactly, exactly. But they're hardware, software, and they actually manufacture things at the base level now. Right. So it's not just a, like Peloton does assembly manufacturing. Apple does invention manufacturing. Very different yep. with some of the parts and processes. So that's interesting. Then you look at Tesla. Well, Tesla's core competency from the outside might look like they make cars, but they're actually like Elon would say it first and foremost. Hey, we're we're not even a software company. We're an artificial intelligence company. Like we develop algorithms. <laughs> that's mm-hmm. that is what we do. Right. So but hardware, software, manufacturing, part invention, and processes invention. So it's like a very deep company. The TSMC episode as a side is actually what got me thinking a lot more about this, where I think Ben had said TSMC is the alchemist, where they are designing the machines that design the semiconductors. Like we're talking about things that are just so deep down the chain. Of course, it becomes hard to disrupt them. Well, they do that in partnership with ASML as the company that makes, the Dutch company that makes the machines. That are hundreds of millions of dollars. Yeah, very, (laughs) very deep partnership. Like like we were talking about the episode. It's not like you can just go, (laughs) A, you can't buy a machine from ASML because... 
TSMC and Samsung are buying them all. <laughs> uh, but even if you could, and you could get one delivered to your house, it's not like you could use it. You know, like it's so there's so much complexity involved in uh, operating this that it's like only within like a TSMC or a Samsung, you know, fab, could you drop one of these things in and like have it work? Well, exactly. And so you look at companies that are getting to that level. Apple, we talked Tesla. The last was Dyson. So Dyson is, and I didn't even even realize, but there's like the James Dyson Institute of Engineering. It's called something like that. And it's the whole point is that people can go and they can become many different types of engineers, whether it's mechanical, software, civil, like name some practice of engineering, which is very cool, but they're designing products. So they're designing products, they're inventing parts, like inventing new processes. And then they're selling this commoditized good at retail in a highly competitive environment, selling at high price, still trying to maintain high volume. Like it's a very interesting business model. So these are all interesting companies. But back to your original question of Peloton, do we think about them? Yes, in some senses, because they're, they've created this movement or this really cool community around what they're doing. But if you think about what they're doing from a hardware perspective, they're actually just assembling off-the-shelf parts with industrial design. Like they're not really design, or sorry, they're not really inventing anything. Their core competency is content creation, Yep. And community engagement. And that's what's giving them network effects. And so they're probably like, let's assume they didn't have hardware for a sec. They're they're an analog almost to like a Netflix where it's like Netflix is in the business of creating content. That's yep. what they do. And they're sticking yep. with it. But like, yeah, like that's that. Peloton. Yep. You know, Peloton is, Peloton's not a hardware company. Like they just sell this thing to try to create enough lock-in that the community never wants to leave. It's a hard game yep. to play. Now I, it'll be interesting to see how they evolve, though, because uh, they have announced they are they are building their own from the ground up manufacturing in Ohio. That it'll be interesting to see what they do with that. Is that like is that just to get better economics on producing essentially the same thing, or is there going to be like true R and D involved in that? That like they're going to start really innovating on their own hardware. TBD. The the jury is out. But but thus far, totally agree. Yeah, they're using off the shelf stuff. You know, the bike. As far as I, I assume, like the bikes run Android, and like, you know, it's, you know, they're not they're bikes. They're they're really nice, but like, the they're bikes. I, I actually like. I love Peloton. Uh, I've only recently gotten turned on to it but i just have a cheap bike on amazon and i use the digital <laughs> uh, you know subscription, which is way cheaper and it's just as good. <laughs> like. Yeah. And it's when you, when they start to think about how they're going to evolve their company, I mean, they've never had to think about it until they went public, right? Because you can get away with things. Now they're like, oh, we, we have to grow every year and it gets harder and harder. There's only so much of the market that you can capture where you hit part of the maturity curve. And then there is a slow evolution of getting growth and market share. So you have to open up new revenue streams. So is going deep, they assume you're, you're, John Scully, we'll call John Foley, John Scully now. Oh, assume, you're, <laughs> assume you're John Foley and the leadership team and you're making a decision right now. So you can go deep into manufacturing and create these products. Maybe you get economies of scale, you get better margins, you're further down the value chain. Cool. One avenue. Another avenue is 
we're going head to head with soul cycle. So everything that we've preached for the past like 10 plus years, I guess we'll call it 10 years, is at home studio convenience. You don't need to go brick and mortar. We'd realize that our, like we pay attention to the community and you've told us that you want studios and what you actually want is multi-use studios. So you want to be able to run and do yoga and do like go biking on a Peloton. So you do that. Like that's a one a different route you take. Or you go, and this is to the innovator's dilemma, you're like, we have to figure out something so different than we're already doing. Where do we even start? We can't just go farming tomatoes. That's really far outside of our core competency. But we kind of need diversification that is similar. I don't know. It's such a good brand. Like They (laughs) they probably could sell Peloton tomatoes. (laughs) Right. But that's where it's like getting into diversification. It's, okay, you're going to have to do something really different if you're going deep into manufacturing, when you make commoditized hardware like that, unless they're able to invent something that us being outsiders, we can't think of like what the next thing is. Maybe it's like at home football studios and people are able to like (laughs) pass with Tom uh, Brady or something like that. There's a, you know, I'm just like making it up. Well, that's, you know, the theme of this whole platform discussion. I mean, A, I think two things. One, you don't have to be a platform. Like Dyson. Uh, it's, Dyson. It's pro- right there. Yeah, Dyson or like like Netflix, like you said, like it's probably a stretch to call Netflix a, a platform. Still a great company and still very valuable. You can still address huge markets <laughs> without being a platform. So it's not a it's not necessary. And it's I don't think it's necessary that Peloton has to go become a platform. But it'd be interesting if they do. Like, what would that look like? Like, Ben and I have been contemplating doing a Peloton episode. So they're also on my mind for that. And I was just thinking, I was like, oh, man, like, how cool would it be if we did a Peloton episode? Dan Primack at Axios did, I think still does every year, Axios uh, Peloton rides together with his readers for charity around Thanksgiving. And like, super cool. We could do that. But like... That would just be like all of us taking a class together. And that would be cool. But like, what if we were leading the class and like it was an acquired episode like on a bike or something? Like, I don't know. That sounds crazy. But like that would be a platform, right? Like if they if Peloton opened it up and they're like anybody can use the network, that would be like that would be pretty cool. Now, there are probably a million reasons why they wouldn't want to do that, but that would be moving in a platform direction. What's funny is so let's look at Dyson for a sec. So Dyson last reported. I think it was 2019, it was like 7.3, so 7.3 billion in revenue, annual revenue, privately held, not a platform, commoditized product. Like that is, I mean, that's just wild to think about. You think of other companies, Netflix was referenced where it's like, okay, let's say Netflix is not a platform. It's just a great company, large market cap. What are they at now? Five, maybe. What do you think they're at? Oh, Netflix? I guess they're probably a hundred or two hundred billion market cap. Let's see. 255.44B. So not a platform company. Significant valuation. Like there's a point where when you when you are, the difference is when you are a platform company, let's say Shopify. Uh, I think Shopify is at like 260 something right now. But there is a world where Shopify hits a trillion. That's not out of question. It's going to take some time, but it's not out of question. I think it would be very hard for a non-platform company to ever get to that Amazon or like Amazon, Facebook, Apple, any of these companies that are trading at trillion plus market cap. Then again, now like let's just say who else is at 
the trillion mark TSMC, right? Like making semiconductors yeah. also used in like everything in the world, but it's just, it's really oh, funny. Well, TSMC is totally a platform. It's just, it's I a guess so, yeah. platform. Yeah. True, true, like, I mean, true. anybody can design, anybody can become a, you know, a customer of TSMC and design whatever chips they want and use true. the, yeah, it's, it's, I mean, I don't know. I think there's, I think you're right. Like if becoming a, especially in a, in technology, like platforms can get very, very, very large. And many of the best businesses tend to become them. But, you know, they're also, this is kind of what I was saying about Netflix. Like you don't have to be, it's just a question of like how big of a market opportunity are you addressing and how good is your, you know, <laughs> product? Like how much of that market will you capture? Like look at the oil companies, right? Like they used to be the biggest companies in the world. <laughs> They're not platform companies. <laughs> They're just no. producing oil. Commoditized uh, products. Yeah, like, totally. Crazy. And and Netflix is, you know, again, I don't know, maybe people would argue with us here and say they are a platform in some sense. I think that's a stretch, but you know, they're making video content. Well, the market for the global market for watching video is very large, you know, very large. You know, YouTube is a platform, right? And is addressing it. Oh, well, Netflix, you know, by our definition here is not, but it's just like, it's just so big. Like, there are a lot of billions of people that watch a lot of trillions of hours of video every year. So I, I don't think they have to become a platform and can probably. Well, I don't, I don't know. I don't have a view on Netflix of whether they can get larger or not. I don't know how much of the world they address right now. I mean, I, I think the reason that they've become so valuable relative to some other video rather than uh, film or movie or TV companies, uh, studios, is the globalization. Like they really early on in streaming, like made a big push to like, no, we're going to be, <laughs> we're going to enter lots of countries. And that's, that's been like the, the, a huge story for them. Yeah. And it's when you talk about best companies, like the best company to build, maybe best is defined by resilient, right? Like best is because best it can become subjective in that sense. Like is 23andMe the best because of what they're doing from an intrinsic standpoint? It's more a matter of the best being what companies are the most resilient. When you look at Netflix and what they're doing from a global perspective, maybe there's a counterpoint to what you're saying about the total addressable market of video and then maybe it's not actually large it like we know it's large because a lot of people watch video but maybe it's actually maybe there's some stat on this but maybe it's actually shrinking for the type of content that netflix indexes on which mm, is highly produced content because what we know objectively what we know is that recently tiktok surpassed youtube in the most consumed video platform by hours wow. of consumption in the world. Dang, I missed that. That's right? uh, that's crazy. So, low, not just low time length, limited time length, lowest possible production value. Like, let's say the th there are three tiers of video. There is Netflix, highly produced. Like, there's a barrier to entry to even get on the platform. YouTube, moderate production value because moderate is what's going to get you more views if you don't have great production value you'll probably not get as many views unless the content was like inherently interesting or different in some way and then there's tiktok where it's just like production value actually makes it worse like you'll get lower <laughs> views the better the production is because it doesn't feel like some genuine off-the-cuff 15 second video and so that is 
an example in itself where it's like back to Netflix. How do they grow? Maybe they're okay being what they are. And I full caveat, like I love what Netflix does from a long tail documentary, highly produced content perspective, but it's a lot harder to consume than it is some of these shorter videos and where Gen Z is going, especially is short, fast bites. That's it. And so like they might have to think about how are we, what do we need to do so that we don't get fully disrupted where there might be a day that generation alpha, I think that's what (laughs) our kids will be classified as or generation. I think that's what it is. Generation alpha. I think that's what it's called. Like maybe there's a world where they're just like, you guys are nerds. You used to watch two hours of yeah, video stuff, like, yeah. that was like people would actually take lighting and they would go with these like cameras that are hundreds of thousands of dollars and you would have a movie set and there'd be like 60 to a hundred people there and craft services. What world did you guys live in? You know, like it's it, that maybe that's actually something that could happen in the future. It's possible. So totally. how does Netflix like index totally. against that? Well, the great thing about YouTube and, and TikTok as being platforms is they just, you know, they let the emergent behavior on the platforms, you know, drive, <laughs> drive where they go. They get, you know, they don't have to, neither of them has to say like, this is our vision of what the future of video looks like. It's like, no, we, <laughs> we provide a platform and like creators create on it and audiences tune in to what they find compelling you know <laughs> whereas netflix has to constantly make all these decisions about like this is what we think is going to do well and that's driven by data and all that right but like no matter how good you are at that you're never going to be perfect so so netflix let's do the thought exercise right now it is 2000 and what year did the iphone drop 06 was it seven it's 07 your job's You've got this bias lens that like Apple has to control every single touch point, including <laughs> which apps are released. And so you keep it closed for two years until you can actually open up the ecosystem. That was the curation lens. So thought exercise being what would happen in Netflix if they removed the curation lens? Like there was still an approval process to get onto Netflix, but it was as easy as getting an app into the app store. App, yeah. And then the and then basically the public can decide whether or not they like want the thing that you made. And it's not so highly curated that it's like Netflix original. I mean, that can still live on there because there's going to be yeah. lots of great like Apple core apps that still get yeah. a ton of use. Apple Maps, right? Like people use well, I that. Think YouTube does this, right? Does it YouTube produces some content they do. itself, right? They do. But what would happen to Netflix if see because they're different platforms. So the talk is just always, for the most part, going to be short, crappy UGC until they change their business model. YouTube is this weird mix of crappy stuff, vlogger stuff, highly produced stuff. But when you go to Netflix, your heuristic is, I know I'm going here for commitment. Like I'm sitting down and I'm watching something basically through. Yep. There's not a place. To your point, is an increasingly rare behavior, even for me. Yeah, yeah. And so, like, there's not as much of a place on YouTube because YouTube is basically search and discovery. That's what it's good at. Netflix is there. There's, 
I guess, a lot more intent when you sit down with Netflix. Like you make a decision to watch something. It's not just like random discovery rabbit hole doom scrolling. So what would happen if Netflix opened up to all the content creators that want to create highly produced content because they love it and they want to do these like hour and a half docs. It doesn't really get traction on Vimeo or YouTube. Like, would Netflix be a stronger platform? Yeah, maybe, it might right? be. Yeah, that actually would be cool. Like, like they should do may- that. <laughs> maybe they'd be double, like double market cap. Like, they'd get to like 500 yeah. bill because they would have so much stickiness and lock-in that people stopped uploading. And this is like such a like rabbit hole of a thought exercise. But people who make that type of content have never had an outlet. So they start making it more and more. That's a possibility. There are more jobs created from it, all of these things. Cool. Get brand deals from creating these docs. Cool. Maybe these people, and granted, there's probably a small portion of YouTube, they stop uploading this like longer form content to YouTube that they were trying to find an outlet for. And they're just like, oh, I'm all in on Netflix. And they become a notable creator for the Netflix platform in the way that somebody's like an IG creator. Entirely possible world. Yeah. That's back to platform. Totally you know, platform totally, totally. conversation. So it's like, maybe that's the, this takeaway is like, have an open ecosystem, have a place where people can build and you'd be surprised. Well, it, just, what, it creates optionality for you. I think if you're able to do that. Yeah. It's better for the consumer. Yeah. You know, better you for the a, consumer and it's better for you. Like you don't have to be right all the time. Exactly. And reliant, like you're not, Netflix is, has a huge team of people that are, their day-to-day job is to curate content for certain categories. As soon as you get rid of that, like that becomes a lot smaller portion of people's jobs because you're like, oh, the world's going to decide. And like to give a hat tip to Seth Godin, people like us do things like this. You don't actually know what documentaries or what nerdy videos are going to get produced because the ecosystem is wide and open. Well, Sounds like the podcasting ecosystem. <laughs> which Very is, much. Which is great. Well, I think that is a good place to wrap. So where can people find you? People can find me and my uh, partner in crime with Acquire. <laughs> Hopefully not crime. That would be bad. <laughs> Part, well, although we tell stories, we're working on... Uh, <laughs> you can find us at Acquired. The Acquired Podcast. Podcast player of your choice or Acquired.fm is our, our website. You can listen to episodes there. But we're... Uh, in the middle of, we just recorded part one of um, our Standard Oil series, which is, uh, oh my God, it was so fun. <laughs> Talk about crimes. <laughs> I didn't think they were committing crimes. Other people felt differently, but we don't usually talk about crime. We are not a true crime podcast. That's where folks can find me. I'm also on Twitter at D-J-R-O-S-E-N-T on Twitter. Or probably if you just search like David Rosenthal Acquired or whatever, they'll find me there. Question though, back to you. For folks well, listening. One more, one more thing. One more thing. The other Benji isn't here. So. Oh, yes. The other Benji. And, yes. So Ben Gilbert, this is normally where Benji steps in and says, <laughs> and if you'd like to join the Acquired LP community, right. you can do so at acquired.fm or join our Slack where there are 9,000 other smart people just like you to enter into the conversation about everything going on with Acquired. Oh, man. I'm glad we're recording this. We can just splice you into our episodes. <laughs> something along those lines. That's pretty close. Yeah, you can find what is what is Ben's Twitter handle? Handle. I think he's. I at think Gilbert. Gilbert. Yes, he is at Gilbert. I didn't get at Rosenthal. That would have been 
that one, uh, that's a little more. Well, I don't know. Gilbert's a pretty con- common name. Good for him. Strong flex there. Strong flex. Back at you, Ben Grenall, not Ben Gilbert. Where can people find more of these discussions for folks who are listening on the Acquired LP feed? Yeah, so we have a podcast. We actually have three of them with levels. One of them is called oh, a Whole You guys New have level. three podcasts now? That's awesome. Yeah, we've got three. We, we launched all three at the exact same time too. Three different ones. Metabolic Insights is aggregation of all the audio recordings of exactly the articles on our blog. So it's deep scientific education about metabolic health. A good way of keeping nice. up with audio on the blog. And then we've got one called Levels Live Session. So it's any book club, clubhouse, anything where there is even a conference um, where Casey or Josh or any of the founding team would participate in those sessions. So we put those out through a different feed. Oh, that's Just, awesome. I didn't realize you guys recorded all those and put them out there. I love that. Yeah, because the production's a bit different and then the nature of the content and it just made more sense. And then we've got our core podcast is called A Whole New Level. And we have conversations with early team members about everything around being remote and async, about how we build culture. We have on different guests like David Rosenthal, or we actually had one about culture a couple episodes ago with Mark Randolph, co-founder of Netflix. So it's a pretty interesting Dang, podcast. Love it with me on this episode. Not <laughs> at all. Awesome. You guys get great guests. Yeah, it's fun. It's a lot of fun. So it's an interesting place where the idea is to not just talk about levels and metabolic health, but to have these open-ended conversations where they go where they go and they're completely unedited. So if you want to check it out, a whole new level. And you can find it on Apple, Spotify, or your favorite podcast player. And on Twitter, I'm at B Grenell, also in the acquired Slack. Dude, this was awesome. Thanks for suggesting it. And uh, it's a blast to get it. This is like actually funny because this is all the BTS stuff. <laughs> that is us figuring out what we're going to do with this audio. But <laughs> depending on the use case, it can dictate, it'll dictate a whole bunch of things. So let me know what you were thinking first, and then I'll go through a bunch of stuff. Oh, no particular thoughts. I'm totally happy to throw it on the LP feed. I mean, we're not precious about production quality or anything on the LP feed. So as long as there's a final MP3, like whatever it is, then. Uh, I can just add a little bumper on it in the beginning, explaining uh, the show, what we're doing and directing folks to the whole new level podcast and uh, just pop it in. Sweet. 